welcome to another podcast episode of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Indigenous Roots and Hoots is about Indigenous people and culture, past and present, success stories and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today. Whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities throughout Canada. Our aim is to create a better awareness about Indigenous peoples, to help bridge the gap of understanding for the reconciliation process in Canada to grow. Today's guest is Martha Flaherty. Martha was born in Inukshuak, northern Quebec. At the early age of five, her family was relocated to the high Arctic to start new settlements in Resolute Bay and Grease Fjord during the Cold War times of the 1950s. Eighteen other Inuit families were also involved in the relocation project that was authorized and requested by the Federal Government of Canada. This plan, known as the High Arctic Relocation, forever changed the lives of all of the families involved. This is just the beginning of Martha's story. Martha is a residential school survivor and attended the Churchill Residential School. After working as a certified nursing assistant at a local hospital in Iqaluit, Martha moved to Ottawa. She enrolled in a journalism program at Carleton University for Inuit students and worked briefly at the House of Commons before starting her lifelong career as an interpreter and translator for the Nunavut Land Claims Organization, the Tungavik Federation of Nunavut. She has since worked for many Inuit organizations and government departments as an interpreter and translator in her language of Inuktitut. Martha was elected president of Poktutit, the National Inuit Women's Organization of Canada, and worked in that capacity for several years. During her time as president of Poktutit, Martha worked on issues affecting Inuit and traveled to many countries representing Inuit, including Greenland, Norway, Switzerland, Guatemala, Peru, China, and NATO in New York City. Martha also worked for the Inuit Tepedit of Canada as an interpreter translator and elected official of secretary treasurer. Her paternal grandfather is the well-known filmmaker Robert Flaherty, who made the film Nanook of the North in Inukshuak in the 1920s. Martha is currently working on a second documentary about her life, with a possible feature film in the works. She has three children, a stepson, and several grandchildren, five great-grandchildren, and currently resides in Ottawa with her immediate family. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode of Indigenous Roots and Hoots. Produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today our guest is Martha Flaherty, also known as Martha of the North. Martha is currently working on a second documentary of her life and her family's relocation to the high Arctic in the early 1950s. She's here today to talk about that period in her life and give us a glimpse of what it was like. Hello and welcome, Martha Flaherty. How are you? I'm okay. I'm good. Maybe you want to start by talking a little bit about where you were born and, and a bit about your family background. I'll just tell you where I was born. I was born in Inuktuak, Nunavik, Northern Quebec, in 1955. Just when I turned five, we were, along with my family, we were relocated to most remote community in Canada called now Grease Fjord. Tell us a bit about your uh, your siblings and uh, what life was like in that. You can remember what life was like in that, in, in Northern Quebec. Oh, that, 
what it was like there, it will be a very long story. All I remember of Inukjok uh, is a beautiful place and um, it has everything and the family's there. There was no problem with, in terms of uh, enough to eat and uh, there was uh, enough wildlife to sustain people's lives. Was, was, was that correct? Yeah, that's what it was. And it's completely different from Greece. Your terrain and animals are all there. You're a residential school survivor and attended residential school in Churchill, Manitoba. How long were you there and what was that experience like? I was there for three years um, in terms of vocational school. It was good, but I was ostracized by Inuit women all three years. Uh, it was horrible. Otherwise, the school was fine. As a young child born in Inukjuak in northern Quebec, and at the age of five years old, your family, along with 18 other families, were relocated to the high Arctic Greece Fjord in Canada. Tell our audience about this difficult time in your life. Well, it's a very long story. I'll just tell you that when we first got there, I don't know how we survived. I still know, I still know how we survived. All I know is that we were dropped there with nothing. There's no housing, no food, nothing. Just rocks, no vegetation. I don't know how we survived, and we had a very hard time from '55 till. The school arrived in 62. I had to hunt with my father when I was only five, like seven, eight years old in a pitch black. And because I'm the oldest of my siblings, there's nine of us. So I had to be treated like a boy and, and learn how to hunt with him in pitch black. And we were always hungry. Uh, when people talk about poverty, I just go think back and say, um, I experienced this firsthand what starving is. Yeah. Maybe just back up a little bit. Talk a little bit about Inukjuak. Compare, you know, when you when I hear about Greece Fjord and, and uh, when you were relocated up there, there was almost nothing there. And what was the government's reasoning for relocating you? What did they tell you? You asking me two questions. You talk as you were telling me to talk about Inukja first. Yeah, well, compare the like in terms of yeah. Well, uh, Inukja, I just told you that its terrain and the environment is completely different. The temperature is different. They have sun every day. Uh, they have all kinds of birds, seen animals, land animals, uh, berries, and they have all the things they need in the community, like school, hospitals, uh, the store, Hudson Bay, and so on. When we went up there, there was nothing. We, we were, it was like landing on the moon. Tell us about, you went up by ship uh, called the C.D. Howe. Tell us about that trip and uh, going through Churchill and, and eventually ending up in Resolute Bay and Greece, New York. The trip from the very beginning, the story about it is terrifying for me. 
that's when everything negative, terrifying things started. First of all, all the children's hair was shaven, except me, because I hid under the bed. One of the nurses found out mother was looking for lice from a child. So the doctor decided to give every child a breast cut, even if you're a girl. In the Tudor tradition, the girls are not to have their hair cut. And I was the only one who who have my hair intact by the time we arrived to Miss Fjord. And on top of that, on the way up there, the water was very, very rough. One particular time I remember, I thought we were all going to die. It was black, pitch black, raining and, and storming. And our big pole, top of it, would almost touch the water. And they had to put us on uh, life jackets and put us on top of the ship. And all the dogs were crying. And I don't remember after that. I remember being very terrified and said, to myself, this is it, we're gonna die, you know? And on the, on the ship, we would hear all those dogs crying, howling, people are throwing up, and people are sick, and it was a horrible trip. And I was only five years old. This uh, RCMP would make a big out of it, pretending to hang me over the water. And I had nightmares for years and years and fear of water forever. The ship you were on, the C.D. Howe, uh, sailed across the, as you said, through storms and uh, very difficult uh, sailing. You went across the Hudson's Bay. You uh, you stopped in Churchill and they uh, did some medical uh, examinations of all the people that were aboard the ship. It was at that time that they, they discovered that uh, your sister Mary, your younger sister Mary, had TB. So they took her off the ship, is that correct? What happened from there? That is true. There were three little girls, two sisters from Resolute Bay. One is oldest one was 10 years old. And those two little girls, Mary and my sister and another young lady, young girl, were taken to taken away from us to send them to sanatorium, TB sanatorium. And there's some horrible stories about that. That's another subject to talk about. Mary, my sister, was lost for two years. They couldn't figure out where she came from. The government of Canada is the one who controlled us where to go. And they brought her back. They brought her to uh, Inukdorf, thinking that where we, that's where she's what parents are from. Wrong. So they sent her to Resolute. Wrong again. She stayed there for a few months. And then finally, they brought her to Bishpjord by very first plane that ever arrived in Bishpjord. Because there used to be no planes at all. What happened used to do also was to, because there's no plane, before Christmas, the plane you used to arrive, go around and around and around, drop and the men would line up our oil barrels on the ice, lit them up, and the plane would go around in the dark, and they would drop the bags, Christmas trees, and 
Christmas present for children. By the time we got them, they're all broken. When you arrived in Resolute Bay after weeks on the ship, the families finally arrived on uh, in Resolute Bay. They told you, they told the families that you were being split up into two groups. How, how, what was the reaction of the families? How did, how, how did you guys feel about that? I was too small to even to remember those because there was harder things going going on that I was experiencing. Like, for instance, when we landed in Resolute Bay, we had to walk five miles to fetch the garbage because we were starving. From the shore we left, where we came out from the ship, we were wearing our gummies, Inuit boots, and the rocks are sharp like knives, very sharp, walking all the way up to five miles. I was only five. I remember crying, and, and I don't remember what happened after that again. And then we found out that our CMPs weren't allowed Inuit to fit, fetch garbage, even, we, if, even if they were starving. When you arrived, finally arrived at Grease Fjord, it sounds like to me, uh, from what I've read, that there was no, nothing prepared for you, the families, no housing of any sort, and that you basically had to fend for yourselves. You initially lived in tents, is that correct, in the middle of winter? It was absolutely nothing. Up to today, today, I still ask myself, where was the military? Uh, they panicked when something's happening in Canada. Where were they? They could have went up there to help us out, give us at least shelter and food, instead of just dumping us out. If they did that, just so Canada can claim the islands, because the Russians were interested in claiming the island for the sake of Canada's interest of the island, we Inuit suffered and got nothing out of it. There was no food, there was no medical services, and there was no schools. No, there was nothing, only RCMPs. And we were not allowed to be near RCMPs. The reason is they didn't want us to become independent on them. So you mean dependent on them, yes. Dependent on them. Yeah. And you had to live outside, pretty much outside, like in tents, minus 50 degrees, 5, 60 degrees, maybe even colder. How did yeah. you survive? Like, how could you, how did you, how could you survive that? Uh, I still don't know. Larry's, my uncle Larry and his family went up there first. They told us it was tough winter. And exactly a year later, his father died from hardship and broken heart broken heart of leaving his family behind. And it was, it's 24 hour darkness from November to February about? And yeah, yeah, of course. And just because of that, we also had a very difficult time trying to find fresh water to drink because the only fresh water iceberg we get is from glaciers that comes, that's by the shore. So even when it's pitch black with a knife, we have to test iceberg 
to find out which one is not salt ice. I we know by the color which one is salt and which one is not salt. So that was a very big task for me because I was a little girl and we have to keep looking forward, trying to find the fresh water was one of the most difficult times. You also had to live in a, you had to make what they call a, what you call a kamak, what's kind of a sod house, a sod hut. You had to live in there with your, with all the, uh, with all the children that, and the whole family. And uh, you, you mentioned that there was a fire. Tell us about that. It was the first year they made this kamak, I guess the whole, the whole family put it together. It was in October, all the men went out hunting. It was pitch black and children and women stayed behind and my, we were in our new hammock because uh, we have an old lamp. It started cracking the, the glass. My mother got worried. She went out to look for something from neighbors, maybe a tape to fix the thing, the cracking glass. It started dripping from uh, above. From she washed the clothes, hang them up. It started. They start dripping and caught the fire. I panicked. I was only five years old. I remember running like crazy, looking for my mom, yelling everywhere. Found her and I threw out the children outside. And by the time I got back, everything was burning down. And I had to keep pulling my mother out of the fire because she was trying to re re retrieve the gun and uh, machine, sewing machine, do it because those are the only survival tools we have. But it burned down, and then we had to go near the, we had to be transferred to near RCMP's old building where RCMPs are stationed, it was an old building. That's where they had to transfer us because we had no place in winter. And when we got there, that was something else because the place was so haunted. It drove us nuts. You had to scavenge with food at the dumps. At times when you were starving, with little, no help, little or no help from the RCMP. For me, yeah, we had to scavenge around the I remember me and my mother, after my father went out hunting, I guess he had no more energy. We hardly had anything. I guess only tea or powdered milk. He asked us to look for garbage, RCMP's garbage, and we had to walk long ways to and be sneaking around so they don't, RCMP's don't see us. I still remember up to date the can Camel cans, we picked them up, an old ketchup bottle, because there was a little bit left over. We took them home, rinsed them up, and gave them to my father to drink it. And those kind of things that we had to do. And I remember one time, particular time, I was so hungry. I turned a uh, uh, terrible skin upside down. There was dead bugs stuck on the skins. I was eating them. I remember that. That's how bad it was. And I, at the end, in winter, 
our poor dogs who are eating human feces and eventually died. And this is for the sake of governments claiming the islands. And they never compensated us right. You also had a, your little brother, Peter. Your mother was pregnant at the time, and Peter was born because he was malnourished. He came, was born handicapped, had some met, uh, mental problems, difficulties learning. Tell us about what your mother had to do to feed him. How did she feed him? That was very difficult to watch. I remember my mother, when we were so cold, when there is no heat, she would put, put snow in a bottle and warm it underneath her armpit to make it water. Once it's water, she would add raw flour and feed him that way. That's how he survived. You had to hunt with your father in the middle of winter, minus 50, minus 60 below, no, in total darkness. Tell us about that time, what, what you went through. All I remember is being very cold and scared because it was pitch black. Um, I remember my father having to help me to go to the washroom because I was so small. Good thing I wasn't eaten by polar bears. Your father's health started to decline. When by the time the school arrived, sixty-two, maybe my father became very angry. Starting out with when my sister Mary was lost for two years, I used to watch him walking back and forth on the floor. Where's Mary? Where's Mary? Where's my family? Where's my family? Um, thinking about his, the family he left in Inutra, and he became mentally ill slowly. Start talking to himself. Always talking about his family in Inukjo that he left behind. And it was very painful to watch him like that. This was there were many broken promises by the government. When they initially moved you to the high Arctic, they promised you that you could come back at any time if you didn't like it up there. So when your father asked to come back, what did the RCMP tell him? Well, they first of all, he cost nobody has money to get back. He wasn't free to get back. We were the elders were told when they wanted to go back, you have to pay for it. Who has money to pay for it to go back home? So a lot of the family have died. We never saw each other. We never saw our grandparents ever again. They died before we ever saw them. So you were deceived? Of course. Lied to, cheated on, and abused, and left to fend for yourselves in the, the worst climate in, in the world. Yes. The uh, yes, on top of that, the compensation, $10 million, that's nothing. When right after the Royal Commission hearings, they gave us $10 million in total. And 
at that time, they gave us only $2 million to divide the for the whole family divided. Right. They wanted to keep $8 million. Makivik took care of it, to hoping that it will have interest for younger generation. That did not happen. But the last payment we got was maybe six years ago, which was only $55,000. That's after our parents died. So our parents who went through hell never got a penny. And $10 million should have been for one person. When you're looking at or comparing other compensations like Japanese war, Holocaust, all these Italian stories, residential schools, TV stories, they're all in human rights museums. In Winnipeg, our story is not even there. And now <clears throat> government of Canada is has claimed the island and they're talking about big bucks right now and establishing all kinds of uh, uh, scientific workplaces. Have you and the families who were relocated, now there was 19 families, have you, any of you ever received an apology from the government of Canada or the RCMP? Absolutely not. Inuit, when we were gathering in the Inukjuak, when we were going to get apology from uh, Canada, I went there. Minister of Indian Affairs apologized. Not Government of Canada. He needs to apologize to us. Government of Canada needs to officially apologize to us. You're not also, there's the Human Rights Museum in Winnipeg. It's fairly new. And there's all kinds of historical events that happened there about Canadians. But you're not in there. Uh, how do you feel about that? I don't understand that at all. I have asked ITK's president more than once, asking them to work on this story to be put in the Human Rights Museum in Winnipeg. I haven't got any response yet. Nobody seems to be interested. Nobody seems to be supporting it. My last question here is about a word that's been talked about right across Canada by many people, and and the word is reconciliation. What are your what are your feelings on your thoughts on this on reconciliation? Uh, it depends on uh, a lot on different issues, like mine is relocation and residential schools should be attached to reconciliation. But I don't think that there's things happening fast enough or things to help us out. For instance, uh, when the news was on about missing and murdered indigenous women and then children being found, I was breaking down because I went to three residential school. So I, I, I called crisis line. And I told him I wanted to, I need some help for, for healing and talking. And they told me they would call me back. Two weeks later, they called and they were calling me from Winnipeg. 
and asking me if I wanted to go for two months. I said, sure. And she shows, it'll cost you $34,000. I don't have $34,000. Healing, intervention, things like that should be free after reconciliation has been done already. They should be free for us now. You're currently working on a project, another a second documentary. Uh, the first one was called Mouth of the North, about your life and uh, about the relocation. And, and this is a second one that's coming out. It's going to be called Shadows of Nanook, something you're currently working on. You want to talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, this one is done by uh, Canada, New York, and Ireland. Filmmakers, it, they were already here from Ireland and Winnipeg. They filmed here this summer in Ottawa. And then after Christmas, we probably going to Inukjuak, Nunavut, Resolute, Respeared, Ekalui, to do the uh, rest of the film. There, it is two segments. One is international, and the other one is national for Canada. And the, the producer from Ireland does international, has done international documentaries, inhumane uh, stories from all over the world. And he does monthly stories called What in the World? And that's who I'm working with. And it should be a very interesting, much more depth uh, story. I'm looking forward to seeing that. The other thing that I wanted to just mention on this podcast episode is you're, you have a famous grandfather, filmmaker Robert Flaherty, who became famous when he did uh, Nanook of the North. Do you want to mention say anything about him? <laughs> this year is 100 years anniversary of his film. So there was there were celebrations all over the world. So we were as a family invited to Inukjuak in August this summer for a wonderful celebration. That was the best gathering I ever went to. We had a wonderful uh, gathering with the family. Uh, a lot of food, wonderful music, wonderful people. And I still thank the whole community. And it was a wonderful and, and a big part of our healing. Like I do same thing on the cruise ship. I work on the cruise ship called Adventure Canada. It does same thing for me. When I travel up north, uh, going to all these places, uh, it helps me a lot. It's a big part of healing. I suggest people see the world. Awesome, Nakumik. Uh, we've been talking to Martha Flaherty, uh, Martha of the North. Uh, she's originally from Inukjuak, Northern Quebec, in uh, Greece Fjord, and uh, now resides in Ottawa with her family. On behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation, Martha, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to do this with us. Nakumik. Nakumik.